Hello, welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne. As you know, we're currently in the middle of the holiday season, which is probably more evident in New York City than most other places because the city really gets decked out in bright lights and festive displays. Since the pandemic started, I and many other people have mostly been working from home, but I did go into our midtown Manhattan offices yesterday, and I took the opportunity to stroll around and look at all of the displays, which really are pretty glorious, particularly the gigantic Christmas tree that lights up Rockefeller Center at this time of year, but there's a lot to, to see as you stroll around the sort of central business district of New York City. Those of you in the restaurant industry will be happy to know that Midtown Manhattan was pretty crowded with lots and lots of tourists who no doubt were going to eat in nearby restaurants and drink in bars. I hope they are doing the same in your communities. I was actually struck by how polite everyone was. Often tourists don't really know how to act when they are in New York, which is a crowded city and requires that you pay attention to those around you, to let them by if they need to pass, and to politely weave your way past others, as you need to do. Politeness is is a funny thing in New York City. Tourists think that New Yorkers are rude, because we tend to be terse and brusque and disinclined to pause for a random chat. New Yorkers, on the other hand, think tourists are rude because they tend to stand around and be oblivious to everyone around them. What you need to understand about New Yorkers is that the rudest thing you can do to us is waste our time. We're not actually busier than anybody else, especially since most of us don't own cars, so we don't have to spend time looking for parking spaces, but time is is a premium for us anyway. It's just a cultural expectation here that you respect other people's time and space. It's a crowded city, and it's not possible to engage with idle chatter with everyone you see. Of course, if someone needs help, you help them, whether it's something simple like giving directions or something more serious like a medical emergency. We all look out for each other, But if you don't need our help, we leave you alone. So if I'm in Midtown Manhattan and someone asks me which way Madison Avenue is, I'm not going to say, Oh, Madison Avenue! That's fancy! What are you going to do there? You're going to go shopping? Instead, I'm just going to point and probably keep walking. To a visitor, that might come across as kind of unpleasant, possibly rude. But I'm just doing what I can to lubricate your life while not taking any more time than you or I need to spend together. Anyway, the crowds in Midtown, looking at all of the department store displays and of course the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, seem to understand the need to take their selfies and pictures of their friends and videos of the light show at Saks Fifth Avenue and then let other people pass. It was really pretty nice. Speaking of nice, My guest today is Gavin Kaysen, the very nice founder of Soigné Hospitality Group in Minneapolis. In French, Soigné means cared for or looked after or pampered a little bit, and Gavin does that with his staff, his customers, his suppliers, and his community. I've known Gavin for a really long time, like 20 years or so, and he lived in New York City for a number of those years as executive chef of Café Boulou before returning to his hometown and building quite a nice company that operates 
restaurants and also catering companies, including one that cooks for Minneapolis's professional hockey and basketball players. If you stay tuned, you will learn more about all of that, because here is Gavin Kaysen. How are I'm you? Good. How are you? I'm I'm good. We've good. known each other a long time. I remember when you were the chef at El Biscocho in La Jolla. It's a long time ago, Brett. That was 18 years ago. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. But you so you've been in Minneapolis now for how long? A thousand years? Today is our eight-year anniversary of Spoon and Stable. Wow. And your publicist, Heather, who I have not known as long as you, but I've known her a long time said that I should ask you what's up with you and spoons. So I'm going to do that. What's what do you have a spoon story that I don't know? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know that I collect them. I don't um, know. If did. It's possible. Uh, I forgot that. You collect. Okay, so, so I, I, I mean, the, the whole reason why we are called spoon and stable is because the, the space itself was a horse stable built in the 1900s. And my affection for collecting spoons, however, they would find their way into my pocket or my wife's purse is is unimaginably exciting as you can imagine I, I i probably just sort of took a few um however we did do a, a lunch here once with ferran adria and ferran was here with jose andreas ferran looked up and saw my my spoon collection which is on the wall there's about 90 spoons on an art piece that my brother built for me and ferran walks up to me with this translator and says now who's who got you those three spoons? Because I know where those are from. I said, I didn't take them. Danielle Balud gave them to me. Danielle stole spoons from El I don't think I don't think that he took them. He just I don't know how I don't know how he got them. All I know is that he gifted them to me. That's all I know. Wow. That that is that's a good story. And he knew it. He he knew it from across the dining room that there was an issue, which was what, pretty funny. What's it like being like you're you're one of those like chef insiders who knows like all of the old the old classic people in a way that I think a lot of the young up and comers don't. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Do, do you ever think about that? That somehow you well, I, you got roped into the kind of inner circle by what did you do the Bocuse door first and then meet? Danielle Bulu, did you? Okay, so yeah, I did the competition first. I mean, I I think I've always, you know, I'm, I'm pretty self aware that I've always had sort of one foot in the old generation and one foot in the new generation. You know, I've kind of bridged. I've I've always bridged that gap a little bit. Um, and watching the younger generation come up with me or now under me, um, you know, even younger because I'm 43. So there's a whole nother group now that's coming up. Um, and then and then still having a close close ties with the the older generation which is the Daniels and Jean George and TK and you know all of the all of these chefs who who I grew up reading about and and looking up to and and now I'm blessed to call friends and mentors and you know colleagues of course but you know people that I that I that I rely on when I when I need advice on on how to do things and so you were in the Bocustor competition what 10 12 years ago something insane oh it was more 2007 Okay, why did you volunteer? At that point, the Americans got basically no support. You just kind of had to go to Lyon and compete, right? Or was it? I did a, no, it's true. I did a competition in 2004 or five. I think it was 2005 called the National Trophy of Cuisine and Pastries. And that's sponsored by the Academy Culinaire de France. It's now called the Trophy Passion. 
Mm-hmm. And um, they still do it in Paris. And I happened to win the U.S. finals, which allowed me the opportunity to represent the United States in Paris. And Pierre Gagnier was our, our head judge. And I took first place for the fish platter. And I took third in the world overall. And I had been the first American to stand on our podium in 20-something years. And Pierre walked up to me at the end of the competition and said, you should really consider competing in the Boku store. And I said, what's the Boku store? <laughs> and he said, oh, you don't know? I said, I have no idea, chef. And he says, you should do some research and do, do Boku store. And he walked away. So Jean-Jacques Dietrich, who was the president for the Academy, who has passed away since since then, um, unfortunately, but he he and I went on a fact-finding trip to Lyon in 2005, and and we watched the Boku store. And I just sat there and I was in the audience. He, he got me in the back, Jean Banchet, was one of the judges from Chicago, if you remember his name. Um, and, and Mr. Banchet got me into the backstage and allowed me to Mr. meet Mr. Bocuse and understand what this unbelievable circus of a competition was all about. And I was hooked. I was addicted to it. I I, I wanted a piece of that. And I studied it. I I watched tape on it. I watched any, any show I could. There was a guy named Nick Verstig out of Canada who had a company called DV Cuisine who, who produced documentaries on the team Canada and team USA. And I would just watch them and over and over again. And I got into it. And so I won the U S finals in 2006, which gave me the right to represent the U S in 2007. And what do you think hooked you about it? I mean, the Boku store for our audience who doesn't know is, is I guess the biggest culinary competition, the most prestigious culinary competition uh, on, at least in the Western world, probably on earth and by any old competition takes place in Lyon and Countries are represented and they have to make specific uh, food in specific categories. Did I get it right? Yep. yep. So, and it's, it's, I like to equate it with like uh, the Westminster dog show or like the ballroom competition in, in that movie, Strictly Ballroom, and that it is a really prestigious competition for the people who care. And then for those who don't, they might not ever have heard of it, as you hadn't heard of the Boku store. Yeah. Uh, is that right? Do you think? Do you think I'm I'm belittling it at all, or am I? Am I? I think it's more. I think now. I think now it's more like figure skating. Okay. Yeah. You know, you 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 care about it when you're there and you watch it, but you don't watch figure skating in between the Olympics. But when it's on the when it's on TV for the Olympics, somehow you find yourself captivated that they hit that triple lux. Right. And you don't even know what a triple ox is, but it sounds and looks terrifying. Okay. And I think Boku store is very much like that. And it's, it is a, what the reason I fell in love with it is because I loved the fact that there was something out there and continues to be something out there that focuses on history and craft. And it's the history of what, what we have done in the past, which has gotten us to where we are today, which will continue to get us moving forward. But then there's also a respect of the craft and I found that to be really inspiring. And as a young cook, I really gravitated towards it. Still do. And as I remember, when you were cooking, like an assistant or something ate your garnish, ate your chicken wings. Was that remember? yeah? So well, every every candidate is is given an assistant um, on top of the one you bring, and they're usually from a local culinary school or wherever. And so we put out our 12 plates of food and I had two extra garnishes, which are these little tiny, for lack of a better term, they were chicken wing. And I had those on my on my little sheet pan with a sill pad. And those two 
those two garnishes were to go on the two plates, one which goes to the media for a photo- photograph and the other one, which just sort of gets paraded around the room for people to see. So they weren't really important plates. I mean, that's the problem with that story is that there's not full context written about it. But um, this person ate those chicken wings. Um, I don't think it changed my score because, again, they're not judging the media are judging me. Just the judges who are tasting the food um, were judging me. So, yeah, I mean, this person ate them, but it's all right. Worst things have happened. I, yes, worst things probably happened yesterday. There's yep. a lot of stuff. Uh, so I, I I don't watch TV cooking shows because when I'm watching TV, I want to turn off my brain. And if it's about food, I feel like I have to pay attention. So I don't even know yeah. if you've been on the TV cooking shows. Have you Have you been on them? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did Next Iron Chef. That was a long time ago. Um, I did. That was with Michael Simon one. So that was probably the same. It was probably the year before I did Book You Store. Anyways, I did Next Iron Chef. I've done Iron Chef. I've done Chopped All Stars. I've judged Top Chef. And then I most recently was the culinary producer for the reboot of Iron Chef, which was on Netflix. Whoa. Is it fun? So I, I went behind the camera on that one, which was fun. That they is- were all fun. They're all fun to do. I mean, it's, you know, I, th- I, I think it's it's a different it's a different um it's a different way to communicate what it is that we do i mean i i i have a lot of respect for the tv chefs and i use that term pretty loosely um because you know you know like i know because you're in new york city and i was in new york city for a long time too i mean when when food network started it was emerald and bobby and whoever because the food network is in new york city right. and they needed to tap the best talent that was around in new york city and that was the best talent Right. And so they went there and they started to do and they just happened to have really great personalities that people were excited to to watch on television. And and I think there's no hiding the fact that 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 opened up our our profession um, in a way that we probably weren't ready for um, because it exposed us. And it was like, here, this is what they do. This is cooking. This is this is a restaurant life. You know, I mean, who, you know, Rocco Despiro's show, the restaurant that was on NBC. I mean, that was like captivating to watch this restaurant open and go up in flames every whatever night it was at 7 p.m. Right. Um, and so, you know, really, it really gave us a bird's eye view of what it is that we, that we do for, for a living. Um, and it allowed us an opportunity to have a stage that, again, I don't, I don't, I can promise you when I started to cook when I was 15 years old, I didn't even know a stage existed for cooking. And maybe it didn't at that time. Maybe not. Maybe so, not. I mean, you, know, you had Julia Child and Jacques Pepin who were doing amazing things. But again, you know, were they were they just sort of to a finite group of people? I mean, just, just the way that and this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, me leaving New York City to move back home to Minneapolis. Again, I think all of that was a result of helping me make that decision. Right. Because people eat and travel all over the country and they, and they know good food and they understand what it means to have great service. And they understand what it means to be in a space that is warm and welcoming and genuine. And that doesn't matter where you are, as long as it's there, you're going to continue to go back. And I think that that, you know, I, I see that here every night. Yeah. It's, it is, it's funny or something. I don't know if funny is the right word. When I started uh, my job 23 years ago, there were, dynamic, vibrant culinary scenes in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles, maybe Miami. And that was it. And now 
every city has an interesting food scene and it's great and anywhere i go i'm gonna have a good meal and um and, and you know there obviously there was always cool local street foodie strip mall stuff that that now i think is getting more attention and deservedly so but uh from e whether it's high-end or just, you know, creative cooking, you know, it's happening everywhere, which is fun. Yeah. And yeah. and you help get that going or continue that in Minneapolis, I think. So good job. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's it's nice to be in an area that, that uh, certainly embraces the local talent, but more than that, you know, we notice the national, the national media pay attention and they're watching, whether you know they're watching or not, which is, which is important. I mean, that's an important thing to 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 understand when you're when you're on this 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 stage of being able to communicate to others what it is that you're doing. You want to be able to do it with a national microphone, and not just a local microphone, right? All the time. So you know, it's important because it brings everybody here. I mean, you know, we have Ann Kim who who's here as Pizzeria Lola. She just had that great special on Netflix for her Chef's Table episode. That's going to bring more people to Minneapolis. You know, it's all of these things contribute to people coming into our community and seeing what it is that we're doing. And it's amazing. And is it easier to run restaurants in a city where rents are lower? You're shaking your head and saying, no, it's just always really hard to run a restaurant. No, because it's, it's that, you know, that's, that's what you're talking about is very transactional. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if rent is a million bucks a year, you got to do 12 million in revenue. If rent's a hundred thousand dollars a year, you got to do right. I mean, it's just a number game. So it's 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 not about um the the ease is not it doesn't change the game doesn't change in some ways it can be a little bit more challenging to run a restaurant in a market like minneapolis which would be a b market versus new york which is an a market um because you have less tourism right you have less activity always happening but then if you ask a new york chef that question they'll say we have too many restaurants and so all, yes, you have all this activity, but there are too many places for them, for the guests to choose from. And if, if you're not in the right location, if you're on the Upper East Side or if you're Midtown or, you know, whatever it is, you know, you might not even capture that business of people coming into town because they're all in Midtown and you're Uptown or you're, you're Downtown, whatever. Um, I think at the end of the day, it still comes down to, do you cook delicious food? Do you deliver genuine hospitality? And if you do those two things at an expert level, people will continue to find you. And how many restaurants do you have now? You just opened two in the Four Seasons, right? Yes, we have Spoon and Stable, Demi, and Mara. Mara's in the Four Seasons. So those That's the three restaurants. Then we have Belcourt Bakery. We have two of those currently. We're working on a third. And then the other space in the Four Seasons is, is a cafe. It's called Soka Cafe, which is only open Monday through Friday, designed for the public, but but really built also for the, for the tenants who are working above us at 14 floors of Office Tower above wow. us as well so and then we have a two catering companies one is called spoon thief catering which is a public catering company and then we have our private catering company which is called kz provisioning uh and that's the one where we end up cooking for um we end up cooking for the minnesota wild we cook for the minnesota timberwolves as well as the minnesota Lynx. so our professional men's and basketball men's and women's basketball team and our pro hockey team so you're feeding the athletes, is that right? We feed only the athletes, yes. We we also cook for the coaches and some of the executives who come down, but our primary focus is to feed and fuel the athletes on a daily basis. So that means you kind of have to pay attention to their nutrition, I imagine. Which... Yep. Yeah, so... <laughs> Sorry, yeah, they all, all of those teams have 
nutritionists on staff and strength coaches. And, and so we, we work with all of them. We have chefs in each of their practice facilities. We have directors of hospitality in each of their practice facilities. And then during the game, we cook for all of the families as well. So we can be a little less nutritionist with them and sort of have fun. And, you know, I mean, a lot of the times too, I feel like that you're at a stadium, you want a great chicken finger, or whatever. Right. So we're happy to do that. Um, but for the players, we certainly do focus on, uh, inflammation. We focus on, on, on level of nutrition and how we can help really get their body the best it can feel for the next day or for that night. So I bet you've learned a lot about nutrition and stuff and how, you know, functional foods that actually work as opposed to some that I won't name that are obviously nonsense. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. It's amazing how important good food is for you. Um, and how much it changes the way you feel and your body and how you look and everything. It's, it is, it is a, it is a, it is a, um, a massive issue that we have in our country in, in terms of the food world. I mean, we we're we're sort of destroying ourselves with what we feed ourselves in, in many ways, which is too bad. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I, we, we cook for these, for these individuals who are the best at what they do. And they care profoundly about what it is that they eat. And it's really gratifying and, and humbling to watch to watch them care so much about it and allow us an opportunity to learn uh how to feed them um so that they that, that way they feel that that way they feel better. And and as a result, it makes us feel better. Has that affected either how you eat or how you cook in your restaurants? Um I don't think I've ever not. I haven't ever not cooked that way in my restaurants. I think what I'm just more conscious of and understanding is that I'm cooking for two different types of people, right? I mean, in my restaurants, you're coming in to find restoration and to have a meal with with friends or family. And an athlete, I'm I'm literally fueling them. And so, you know, they both they both are created from the same ingredient tree, frankly. I mean, the flour that I buy for Spoon and Stable and Demi and Mara is the same flour I buy for the Timberwolves of the Wild. Nothing changes. I know where the flour comes from. I know that it's milled fresh for us every day. Um, I understand the whole process of it. The difference is, is the amount of food that they eat versus the amount of food that that my guests eat in the dining room is is dramatically different. Um, and and so, you know, you just sort of learn that. But you know, we, we KZ Provision is a very humble place to work because there are times where, you know. Like you said earlier, you don't want to watch food on television, right? You want to turn your brain off. Right. Sometimes these players don't want to be told what to eat after a seven-day road trip. They just want to come home and eat what they want to eat. And we have to match that, right? We have to understand how to meet that and, and how to be humble. And, and hospitality has to be driven to, to that perspective for them to say, like, listen, we're there. We're going we're gonna to feed you what you want. You just have to understand this is what it means. So we haven't changed a lot of it. We just adapt to it. Interesting. Yeah, I was just uh, on the West Coast for work and fun. And I was with a friend of mine who's a restaurant consultant in L.A. And he took the opportunity to say, let's check out all of these restaurants in one day. I'm sure you've been on research trips like that where you eat some food that's good, some that's bad. And ultimately, it's not it's too much. It's too much food. So, we, you know. We were all over LA. We just wandered in a Chinese restaurant and had noodles and dumplings. And we had two dinners and stopped off at different places. And it just, oh, it, uh, 
I'm not saying I, I want to on one level say these were bad choices that I made because ultimately they're not good for me. But for that day on that occasion, they were great choices because I was hanging out with my friend, trying different food. It was fun. So I'm, I'm sure that's I, I guess the athletes have to do that. Your customers have to do that. You do that. I mean, as that's, a, as yeah, of course. I mean, that's human nature. Right. I mean, that's that's human nature. We want to we also want to be able to have fun and not be I mean, not be set to a, a stone, you know, law that's put into stone. And so, you know, you got to go out there and that, and by the way, that's also part of, uh, part of an important diet is having fun and, and understanding what that means. I mean, it's, you know, what's, what, what we often see in, in the world of athletes too, is that inflammation comes from stress. It doesn't come from bad food. So, you know, it's, it's, um, but, but you make poor decisions because you're stressed, right? Uh -huh. So, so, so it's sort of it becomes it becomes this cycle, and our our job is to make sure that we are intervening on those decisions and help them make the best decisions that they that they can make, and we're there we're there to provide provide that nourishment for them. Um, it's it's amazing. I mean, you know, I'm so grateful for the basketball team here, the men's and women's team, and the hockey club you know, just the trust that they put into us and put into our team and the relationships that we've built throughout the years. This is our fourth year cooking for the Timberwolves and, and Lynx. It's our fifth year cooking for the Minnesota Wild. It's just, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. That's a good point about stress and inflammation and all of that. I, I get all these emails, obviously, about new menu items and stuff. And they any if there's chocolate in it, they call it decadent. And I yeah. feel, well, how is that decadent? It's delicious, but sure. is it a Cindy chocolate? Not, not where I come from. And I like to tell people that chocolate is good for you because it makes you happy, and that's huge. That's a, unless you don't like chocolate, obviously. But of course, there's so much that the just the raw nutritional aspects are not, yeah, not key. So you mentioned that you have your own uh, flour milled for you which I think is probably easier in Minneapolis than most places because it's a mill town. That's how it originated, right? Yeah, and that's right. All your grain milled. So uh, that and wild rice. What, what what are other like things in in the in Minnesota, in the Minneapolis area that that are kind of central to the cooking you're doing these days? Yeah, I mean, wild rice is a good one. You know, I'll tell you what's interesting is the one that that seems to be the most uh, misunderstood is walleye, which is a fish that we have here. Everybody says, oh, we have walleye. Well, the walleye that you can buy is actually coming from Canada most of the time because um, the, the, the Native Americans and the preservations, they own most of the land in which the walleye is caught and, and they keep that uh, for themselves naturally. So, you know, often you don't get to cook with a lot of that from, from Minnesota, but I mean, the grains are a very important part of our culture here. And so whether that's for, for pasta, whether that's for bread, whatever it is, you know, we use a company called Bakersfield, which is probably about seven miles from Spoon and Stable, um, you know, and they're milling that flour for us. And it's just, it's an exceptional product. And, and often, you know, what the West Coast has in produce and tomatoes and kind of what the East Coast has in, in that great fish that comes off of the coast, you know, we have in grains, um, you know, we have some really great local beef and pork uh, purveyors who we use. It's a local family there in Wisconsin. Um, so, you know, we're, we're blessed to be able to work with a lot of really wonderful, um, 
wonderful people and farmers and who, you know, it's taken us eight years to create these relationships, right? So you have, you know, 90 people that that we're buying things from and the produce. Now, what, what gets tough, Brett, is that, you know, it's snowed, it's been snowing here the last three, four days. So we're starting to get now into winter. So our seasons are just so dramatic. You know, I mean, we literally went from just a really beautiful, pristine fall to exclamation point, it's winter. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a tough transition for our farmers. So we, we take a lot of responsibility in, in helping understand how we can help them through that. When I imagine because your winters are like Game of Thrones winters there, that uh, I imagine a lot of the root vegetables and stuff just sort of stay underground and kind of get sweeter and then you harvest them and, yep. and they're awesome. But, but of course, farmers still have to eat in the winter. So yeah, yeah. I mean, is there, is there, what can you use from farmers in the winter? What do they have in your area? They have a lot of, so, I mean, they have a lot of vegetables as well because they are, you know, they have hot, they, they have the hot houses and they, they use those and we're using those as well. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's not as dire as one would think, but you know, the thing is, is that when we are, you know, the beauty of cooking in seasons like Minnesota, where it is dramatically four seasons mm-hmm. is that your body tells you what you want to eat and what you should eat. And what's beautiful is that that's what happens to be in season, right? I think we have this, we have this um, unfortunate uh, opportunity that we can buy strawberries in January because they are in season somewhere. Yes, but they're not in season. They're not in season here, right? And so, if I were to eat those strawberries in January, while they're delicious, um, they're probably not the best for my body to eat at that time. And so, you know. I, I I respect and I love to sort of follow those seasons as much as I can. I mean, now we're going to start to get into the braising season and we're going to start to get into these root vegetables. And I can tell you, I can promise you in four or five months, I'm going to want to see the color green so badly, but I'm still going to be two months away from that at that point. And that's okay. Yes. You're, you're used to it. You've been there a while. So Mara has won all the awards, I think. It's like the best new restaurant in, in Minnesota and everybody's psyched about it, um, which has to be fun. Congratulations on that. So what what are some dishes that you're serving either there or at your other two restaurants or getting ready to serve for the coming winter? Or I guess it's already winter in Minnesota. Yeah. No, I mean, so, you know, like at Spoon and Stable as an example, we have the Dorothy's pot roast, my grandmother's pot roast that's been on the menu since we opened eight years ago, and it's a very specific cut of meat uh, of, of the beef that that our friend Andy Peterson from his farm in Wisconsin gets for us. Uh, so I'm, I'm always excited to see that back on the menu. So are our guests. It's one of those things that gets put on the menu, usually end of October, early November, but our guests start to ask for it about end of August, early September, which is funny. Um, you know, and Mara, we just started to change uh, some of our items into the into the fall and winter, as you say, but some of the classics that will stay on that menu that I just love are the salt crusted bronzino, which is a whole bronzino and the salt crust baked. We take the salt crust off and then serve that very simply with charred lemon and tzatziki. The hummus that we do there with the pita bread, the pita bread is lights out. And a lot of it is really credit to the to to the the Bakersfield uh, flour that we get. Uh, and Tony, Tony Yang, our chef there, he, he worked really hard at making that, uh, that a great a great pita bread. So I have to, um, you know, say that 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 we're really proud of what that that pita has done there, and it's exciting. And then Demi, you know, that menu changes pretty much every five weeks. So, you know, we we see a huge shift of 
fall into winter and then winter into winter and then winter into winter again. And then eventually, Brett, we get to spring. All right. Um, what what is the cut of pot roast of, of beef that you use for your pot roast? You so it's a top it's a top blade. In French, they call it a palerone, uh, but in English we call it a top blade. And so uh it has this really beautiful um sort of marrow right in the center of it that that when when braised long enough, it literally melts like a marrow. Uh, and it's just this, this beautiful sort of added gelin to your to your sauce. And you said it's named after your grandmother? Yeah, my so that's my dad's mom. Her name is Dorothy. She taught me how to make that dish. Often on Sundays we would cook pot roast or chicken and dumplings, which I you know happen to both be. I'll do a plug, but those happen to both be in our new cookbook. I was about to ask about the cookbook, but thank you. That's a good uh, good segue. Except I want to ask if your grandmother also used the same cut, the palerón. No, she used a roast cut, but that's okay. I won't I won't hold it against her. No, no, I, that's why you as a chef. Can can honor her recipe while also finding another cut. That's right. So That's your right. cookbook just just came out, right? Like when recently? <clears throat> yeah, we just came out about three weeks ago. Was the official pub date? Yeah. And what's it called? Yeah. So it's called At Home by Gavin Kaysen. Um, we will we will actually be letting people know that officially online we are out of the first print, so you can order the book uh, again. It's just going to take until probably the first part of next year for you to get it. Uh, we've or, we've already we had already ordered more books. Um, you know, I self-published this book, Brett, so I didn't necessarily know and or anticipate what kind of sales we would have. We do have we do have books for sale. You know, at Spoon and Stable in our restaurant, you can go to GavinCasey.com and find the different places they are for sale um, around the city here. But you know, we're we're working on that second. The second print is already working, but it's it's a book that is genuinely built to share with people what it is that I cook at home for my family and what I have always cooked at home for my family. And we just, we put those recipes into a book and it's just been so gratifying to watch people actually cook the recipes and it come out great. That's awesome. Did yeah. it, since these are things you cook all the time, did you actually have to work hard to develop actual recipes? No, but what I had to work hard at, and I, uh, two of my colleagues, Aaron and Kylie, were were tremendous at helping me do this, was um, following me with, around with a computer or a phone to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, how much salt did you put on that? I said, I just put some salt. He said, right, we understand that, chef, but how much salt is that? I said, I don't know. It's a tablespoon. They say, is it a tablespoon? I said, I don't know. So no, I didn't have to develop the recipes. What I had to do is I had to make the recipes functional for people to be able to do them at home and not speak to it in, 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 in a language um, that was off-putting and not understandable, you know, and, 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 and also, but also to like, you know, I think the book does a really great job at like carrying this balance of saying like, Hey, as a chef, this is how I cook. Okay. So just because you're a home cook, I'm not going to change the recipe. I'm going to teach you how to make this. And there are dishes in our book that they're going to take you 45 minutes to make and you're done. There's some that'll take you 20 minutes. And there's some that's going to take you three and a half hours. And you can choose which ones you want to do on a snowy, snowy or rainy Saturday afternoon. But you have the op you have the options to choose from it. And so um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun doing it. Sounds like it. And and you sold out. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, that's great. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I we're, we're about out of time. So I want to thank you a lot for taking the time to uh, speak with me. I'm, I'm really 
delighted that you're you're so successful and that you're doing well and it just makes me feel thank you yeah and it's always been a pleasure to talk to you because like you said we've known each other for a long time and um it's just i'm grateful for all your support throughout the many years and paying attention to what we're doing and writing about it and talking about it well keep up the good work and i can keep writing about you there you go and uh, I think we can wrap it up. Thank you so much, Gavin Casey, for taking the time to hang out. Thanks, Brett.